The world has gone insane. Cosplayers rule the conventions. Gamers dominate the tabletop and the internet. Sci-fi subjugates the movies and fantasy rules the bookstore with an iron fist. Only one group can bring order to this unruly mob. A team of uber geeks, masters of the nerdly arts, trained for decades in the hobby shops and basements of the nation. Mobilized by the secret masters, they are the Department of Nerdly Affairs. Hello, operatives, and welcome to the Department of Nerdly Affairs. I'm your host, Rob Patterson, here with my co-host, Don Chisholm. Really? I love that guy. Yeah, me too. And tonight, we are going to talk about remakes. No, no, wait, reboots. Oh, no, no, sequels. Remates, <laughs> reboots, sequels. Oh, my. Well, whatever we're talking about, it's all about doing it all over again. We're just going to talk about, you know, people rehashing the same content over and over again and why they keep doing it mm. again and again and again. <sighs> why do they do it, Don? Please tell me. I can't figure it out. <laughs> well, this this goes, ironically, to uh, something we've brought up a few times on the show, is um, everything in entertainment comes down to the audience. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's something that gets neglected when people make comments about, say, the movie industry or TV or, or, or whatnot. We mean it's uh, not because they're out of ideas? Oh, hell no. No, it's it's in a lot of ways, it's the exact opposite. Like, there's... People will complain because they'll say, oh, they're making another, um, just to, to even keep it narrow, they're making like another Batman movie when there's like a million other characters they could pick. Mm-hmm. Well, it's true, but they know if they pick somebody else, uh, there's a risk. People know, that they, 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 they like what they know. Mm-hmm. So everybody, everybody knows Batman, so a Batman movie, you're going to get a certain amount of asses and seats just because a lot of asses and a lot of seats. Um, but the thing, the thing with that, it, it, it creates that catch 22 mm-hmm. because they know if they go for the same old, mm-hmm. that it's less of a risk, right? There's a bigger chance. The audience will, will, will go for it, mm-hmm. but you risk that chance of creating fatigue. Definitely. Like what yeah. happened with Spider-Man. Yeah, well, it it did because because what ends up happening, mm-hmm. and, and this is the, the the difficult part if you're selling any kind of entertainment. Mm-hmm. Entertainment's based on novelty, mm-hmm. and we've mentioned that uh, uh, before. It's come up a few times. Yes, but the problem is if you go too novel, if mm-hmm. you do something that's too new, too different, people stay away in droves because they don't know how to take it. They don't have like a template in their head like batman's easy big scary guy punches out bad guys you know okay Mm -hmm. we we understand that um you see it with say superhero fans will find like japanese stuff baffling Mm -hmm. and it's partly because you're dealing with another usual you're dealing with another template other standards um, people don't know what it means when a Japanese character gets a nosebleed or makes certain funny noises, or they always have these weird nervous smiles. Well, mm-hmm. it's it's that same idea. It's a different template. It's a different formula. Right. Yeah, it's yeah some, true. Yeah, it's somebody else's same old, same old. Right. 
which can make you a little bit nervous if you're not used to it. You don't quite know how to take it or how to deal with it. And it's also not comforting at that point. It isn't. And it also has the problem, too, that it takes a little more effort than a lot of audiences are willing to put into things. Mm, True. Because you have to pay a little bit more attention. You have to think about what you're seeing a little bit more. Mm -hmm. Um, The old standard you get from people is, when I come home, I don't want to have to think. I want to just watch TV and relax. And that's why, you know, they make 15 permutations of the horrible housewives of wherever, because it doesn't take a lot of effort to understand. No. No, it does not. Mm -hmm. And so it's also cheap, too. There's there's that. But... But then let's face it, I mean, let's look at a literary example. For example, romance novels. Every mm. romance novel is the exact same story. <laughs> all, like, 10 billion of them are all the exact same story. Yeah. Just over and over and over again. Yes, there are slight permutations. Yes, there are variations. Romance fans, I'm not slamming you for that. Mm-hmm. I know that there are lots of variations. There's, and here, there's the same as superhero books. Superhero books are all this exact same story. Permutations, yeah. yes. But they're still the exact same story over and over and over again. Why? Because people like it. It's safe. It's comforting. And there's something about that particular story that resonates with people. There, there is, and it goes with that idea too. As soon as you can identify something as part of a genre, mm-hmm. the audience knows what to expect. They don't just know what to expect; they want it. That's one of the things that people have discovered: is that for the most part, people just want more of the same. Yeah, and and well, to a point, because the other confounding variable is you. An audience will get fatigued. Mm-hmm. If you give them the exact same, eventually they get tired of it because there's no longer a kick. You don't even get that minimal surprise. And that's why you'll see um, when a new genre takes off, it usually lasts for a little bit. And as it progresses, you'll see different permutations. So like romance novels. Mm -hmm. Um, Say pirate romance novels get popular and it's all these Fabio-esque pirates in them, blah, blah, blah. Yep. Eventually, they'll take it another step. It'll be they're not pirates. They're like 1950s gang guys because it's sort of similar. It's still familiar. Just enough of a twist. Eventually, you try out all these permutations and you get to like dinosaurs. Mm -hmm. And I I don't know how dinosaur porn keeps working its way into the show, but... Hey, romance novels are not porn. Exactly. Uh, Depends on the book. Wink, (laughs) wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Yeah. Yeah. But you you get to that, and then what ends up happening is you've taken it as far as it can go, and either the audience loses total interest in it mm-hmm. be, because they're again they're fatigued, they they've seen every possible permutation, mm-hmm. or you've moved into something else, and now you've made something different, and the cycle starts all over again. Yep, that's true. That's how new subgenres are born. Yeah, and and it's that idea like um. Nothing comes out of of nowhere. Nothing, because again, if you do something totally new, people Mm -hmm. won't know how to take it. Yep. Uh, But you always want something that it's just different enough that it feels like something new. Right. Hmm. Um, A good example of that would be, uh, I think, Star Wars. Okay, how so? Uh, The original Star Wars comes out, Mm -hmm. and it, it really felt like something different. We'd had, like, you know, spaceship evil empire shows before, 
But mm-hmm. space space was usually very clean and antiseptic. Right. Lucas wanted it to look lived in. So you get all the, the Imperial stuff is, yeah, there's no dust anywhere. But all, like, the Rebel stuff is, like, duct taped together. Um, mm-hmm. All the settlements they go are these, like, frubby little worn-out kind of things. Mm-hmm. It feels different. It feels new. That idea doesn't come out of nowhere because in the late 60s, going into the 70s, you had a lot of post-apocalypse stories. Right, yeah. And he had appropriated some of that imagery into Star Wars. Mm-hmm. So that that creates something different by combining a couple of things that are already familiar. Yes, definitely. And, of course, Star Wars itself is a giant pastiche, I mean, or collage. Collage is probably the better term. <laughs> collage of, like, many different sources from samurai films to World War II, you know, bombers to Gunga Din. I mean, it's a giant, you know, collection. It's Tarantino-esque in a way. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, he's taken elements of many different things that the audience was already familiar with, and then he brought them in. Actually, going to the bombers, that's a beautiful example. Mm-hmm. Remember that he actually used, you know, World War II fighter film footage that the audience was kind of familiar with to produce the starfighter scenes. Like yep. he was actually copying cockpit footage and everything from those scenes. The the fighters move like World War II fighters because they are. Mm-hmm. And so he wasn't even trying to create a new paradigm there. He was working what the audience was already familiar with and just expanding on it and taking it in a slightly new direction. Yeah. And then that that ties in with some of the things that you get um, if you're dealing with a mass audience. Mm -hmm. You get weird little sub pockets. Because a lot of, um, I hate the term, but a lot of hard sci-fi fans Mm -hmm. object to like space fighters like in Star Wars because they say it's not realistic. Mm Mm-hmm. The irony is, like you said, they work like the kind of like World War II fighters that we'd seen in movies, we'd seen in real life for, for a lot of people at mm-hmm. that time still. Mm-hmm. It was that familiarness. If we had of the, if he did them realistically, mm-hmm. the audience would have thought it was horrible because they'd be like, that's not how it works. Even though it is because the audience doesn't have familiarity with astrophysics. Yep. They're transposing what they already know into the story, and that's how they're making their judgments. Yeah, pretty much. It's the same reason why, for the most part, starship combat in the original Star Trek is basically submarine combat. Yeah. They're using the submarine template as uh, combat because that's kind of what they know. Um, Submarine, more or less. Yeah, that's the best way to describe it, I'd say. And yep. again, you're just working with what's already there because the audience can only stretch their minds so far. You generally have to work with what's already in their heads. Yeah, and, and I've, I've seen it mentioned for a, a lot of like nerdly productions that you can generally add one really weird aspect mm, to I've the formula. Yeah. yeah, that if you add more than that, you lose people mm. because it becomes too hard to... It's, it's not just um, too hard to juggle, but... Nobody comes into anything clean. They come into it, you have expectations, you have likes, you have dislikes. Mm-hmm. And uh, any kind of like sellable media is playing off of those. Yes, definitely. And that's why you'll get um, a lot of it just is really, really, it, it plays into those expectations. Even if the story or the setting or any, anything anything external like that is diminished because of expectation. Mm-hmm. 
Um, another example I can think of is uh, if you do a movie where the female and male lead characters aren't making out at the end of the film, mm-hmm. people get they're they're kerfuffled. It doesn't feel right just because every movie ever made that's what except one that's what happens. Right. That's true. Um, well, again, audience expectations. I mean, mm-hmm. yeah, you get used to it. Also, remember that. It's reinforcing um, a belief, right? The idea that if you are successful, you get the hot, attractive person. That's part of the reward, right? One of the rewards of life is that you get a hot, attractive mate. Mm. And we like to believe that that's going to happen to all of us. And for some of us, it does. For some of us, it doesn't. But the key point is we still like that idea. And it's we want to see that reinforced. If it doesn't get reinforced, it feels wrong for some people. It does, and that's, again, where um, a lot of people complain about, especially, say, action movies, that they're dumbed down nowadays. Mm-hmm. And a lot of it's because of, of that idea that you're dealing with foreign markets, mm-hmm. and the audiences in, will have a different expectation. Yep. That's um, creating some real problems for Hollywood right now. It can, because um, I can think of, of a few really mm-hmm. notable ones, like... Um, Anybody who's watched a lot of, say, Japanese stuff, Mm -hmm. there's an attitude in the East that's more pervasive than here Mm -hmm. that likes to reward hard work. Yes. And that's why if you see, like, a Japanese series starts with, the hero is always an idiot, he's a loser, he's lazy, he sucks, Mm -hmm. and the story is him Mm -hmm. knuckling under, pulling himself up by his bootstraps and becoming the hero. Yes. Mm-hmm. Here we tend not to like that. We like our heroes to be awesome right from the beginning. Yes. Well, it's a shortcut, right? We we just yeah. kind of like to jump to the good part, so to speak. Well, not well. Yeah, no, because for like say an action film, mm-hmm. um, you never you never see the training montage except when the more awesome villain kicks the hero's ass in Act One, and then at the beginning of Act Three, he's got to build up. Right. For the most part, like, the tough guy is just the tough guy right from the beginning. Mm. And they like to establish that. Like, if you've ever seen, like, a, like a cop movie, right. they're all the same. You blew up downtown trying to stop this guy. You know, we're gonna go if you break the rules again. Why? Well, they already show that this guy's established. He's a badass. Even his boss can't touch him. He's mm-hmm. awesome. Right. Well, that's very 80s, but yeah, okay. Well, they still do it. Superhero movies kind of fudge that because they want to do the origin. Mm. But you find what you get in that case is very seldom do you really get the hero working hard to be the hero. Either something accidental catapults them into hero-ness. Mm-hmm. Or even if they do the training montage, right. there's something about this character that sets them apart right from the beginning. Yes. Yeah, Absolutely. So like like when Bruce Wayne runs away for some reason to join Ra's al Ghul to become Batman because we always have to tie everything closer together in every story. Mm-hmm. Bruce Wayne as a kid is already a badass. He manages to sneak out. He you know gets to the other side of the world and, mm-hmm. and he gives up all of his like his his wealth and material possessions to toughen up. He's already kind of a he's not Batman yet, but you can already see there's something about this guy. Right. That he's already, like, more cool than you are kind of thing. Mm. So, as you said, they're already uh, 
special in some way. Yeah. But that goes again with the idea of, I don't want to use the term, but oh, I'll use it anyway, American exceptionalism. There's this, you know, frontier spirit, the American icon of the cowboy, you know, the rugged individual, mm-hmm. the idea that, um, you know, Americans, and I shouldn't just, you know, I'm not crapping just on Americans, because you'll see this in a lot of other cultures as well. Um, the idea of um, the individual hero who's a self-made man and can handle himself and is, you know, good in many different areas and is, you know, just capable. That's the American ideal. Mm-hmm. That's the American ideal, the ideal that um, that they're shooting for. And that's what the audience wants to see, I guess. It is. I think the, uh, the, the term that I think works better, and you actually used it, was rugged individualism. Mm. And if you look at, like, the States, there's, there's other countries too, but the States is probably the most readily uh, observable. Mm. That concept is entwined all throughout society. Yeah, it is. That it's, it's the person that stands on their own, Mm-hmm. doesn't take help from everybody, doesn't, you know, doesn't whine, doesn't wheedle, they know it needs to be done, and they just suck it up and do it. Yep, exactly. And again, that, that concept, because it's so interlaid, mm-hmm. it shapes that expectation. Which is why, and I actually, I'm going to deviate from things here for a second. So I've been reading a book by a guy named John Truby, uh-huh. and it's called uh, The Anatomy of Story. Um, 22 Steps to Becoming a Master Storyteller. Um, this is part of a... I've been reading a whole bunch of different you know, books about storytelling and such. But right. Truby points something out in the beginning of his book that I'd never really thought of before. And I actually have... The more I think about it, the more I've come to actually think he's right. He completely is. Is that every story, ultimately, is you presenting... Sorry. Every story, ultimately, is the author presenting a worldview and the way they think things should be. Okay. Every story is ultimately a moral argument, but not necessarily good versus evil, although that's, again, a moral argument, but that every story has at its heart a kind of moral center and that everything in the story expands out from that moral center. One example being, as we were just talking about, the idea of the rugged individual. That, you know, the ultimate man and the most successful man or woman is a rugged individual who can handle themselves in any situation and, you know, is just awesome. And that you can be born awesome. That's a moral argument. That's an argument based on the idea, uh, on the idea of, yeah, the American dream, I suppose, so, so to speak, or the American ideal. As opposed to, say, the Japanese one, which is that everyone is born average, but has the potential to work hard and be a better member of society if they just work hard at it. Mm. And that every story, no matter what story it is, is ultimately presenting a worldview of some kind. And that's what truly shapes the story, according to Truby. Mm. And I've actually started to believe that I think that's correct. I think it really is. I think it's ingrained deeply into what we call stories. Um, I was actually talking to Graham, actually, who we had on before about alternative role-playing games, my friend Graham McLean. And he mentioned that during his research, because he was doing his PhD on like storytelling and narrativism and all that, he said that there was uh, some Russian researchers whose names he's probably saying right now, but sorry, Graham, I can't remember (laughs) offhand, um, who found that when they analyzed huge numbers of stories, they found that the one thing that was common to all of these stories, no matter what, was that they all ultimately had a moral center and a worldview. Mm -hmm. 
everything else would be different, but they all still were rooted in some moral center or moral worldview. Again, I'm using the word morals, which people think of good and evil, but that's not what I mean. And what I'm talking about is you could almost say an, uh, the right way to behave or the right way these things should happen or the right way to live, basically. Hmm. Which goes back to the idea that uh, we've discovered through science that human beings love stories. We are storytelling machines, basically. We both manufacture stories and we absorb them because we learn through story. We're wired to remember story. We're mm -hmm. wired to learn from stories. So to us, any story we experience is actually a perspective of the world that we're taking in. And we're taking it in with the idea of we're learning from that person's perspective or from that story, whatever. There's something that we're getting from that story, almost like a simulation in a way, if you want to take it that way. Right. And what's even more interesting is our brains don't actually differentiate. Every story we take in, we take in as though it's a personal experience that we actually had to happen to ourselves. Mm -hmm. It's just our rational brain that says, no, 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 I really didn't go off and fight the Galactic Empire and become a Jedi. <laughs> you, our rational brain says that. Yeah. Um, and of course, not all of our rational brains, but most people's rational brains say, <laughs> you know, that really didn't happen. Um, but that's, again, that's also where you get into that situation where people remember a story so well that they start to believe that it really did happen to them. Usually mm -hmm. not fighting the Galactic Empire, but occasionally we, we tend to, you know, change our history, our personal history, one way or the other. But anyway, yeah. going back to this then, so stories basically are all about people learning. They are all about people learning about how to behave, what it is to be human. And we're sharing that idea of humanness and being a, being a human being in one form or another. Mm -hmm. And so again, going back and going back to what Truby was saying, although he doesn't mention this specifically about the story learning part, that I would say that's where the whole moral thing is, right? Where Truby's saying, yes, all stories are about humans teaching other humans how to behave, Basically, it's all right. about about what it is to be human and how people should deal with different situations and different circumstances. And that can be whether it's a, even a romance novel, doesn't matter. It's still teaching you how you should behave in a relationship or the nature of things as we wish they were anyway. Because <laughs> that's, I think, I think he's right. Um, and I think it ties into something else important. But mm -hmm. I also kind of think the phraseology is a little off. I feel that way too. Like referring to it as, if you're referring to the whole idea of a moral center, I think that's not quite right. But that's the term he uses. And I think it's close, but I don't think he's yeah. quite there. By the way, I'm mentioning this partly now because this will tie in with our discussion of uh, sequels and such. But mm. I'll explain that later how it ties in. I'm <laughs> saving that for a little bit later. Okay. Because okay. I've been thinking about this. Okay. Sorry. Continue. Oh, because it's um, every story... Mm -hmm. And this is where I think the, 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 the difficulty comes in. Cause I don't know if English has a word for what's really going on. Mm -hmm. Um, every story has a moral, mm -hmm. a lesson, if you will. Right. Because every story plays out a certain way. Right. Um, I think the, the big diff though, mm -hmm. where people might get a little wrapped around the axle about the wrong thing is I don't think those are necessarily meant as teaching tools all the time. I don't think they are either. I think in a lot of cases, they just creep in. Yeah, and they, they do because another important thing um, there mm -hmm. is creators aren't magical beings that just kind of evolve in the cabbage patch. Mm -hmm. Creators come out of the societies they're part of. Right, yeah, exactly. 
And depending on their relation with their society, they're going to tend towards different views. Mm -hmm. So for instance, if somebody makes like some kind of um, weird, horrible, I guess the popular term now is torture porn, Mm -hmm. but we would have called them like slasher flicks. They're not necessarily saying that it's a good idea that inbred mutants should go around stabbing horny teenagers. But they're not saying it's not though. <laughs> yeah, they're not saying they shouldn't, but but there there's this idea that something in that appeals to the creator. Yes, definitely. It, it feels right. The way it plays out feels right, and it might be because as a creator this is something they want to say to society. Mm-hmm. They might realize that this is something completely antithetical to society, but there's a, a dirty little pleasure about, you know, putting it on the screen. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they might have some kind of weird fascination with some aspect of it. And I don't necessarily mean in like a weird Freudian kind of way. I mean, it. somebody might just be into special effects. So they mm-hmm. make movies that just push special effects for the sake of pushing special effects. Right, right. Um, you see a lot of art films do that. They'll do weird filming in that. It's not necessarily because they're trying to to tell a specific story and make a specific statement. They're just screwing right. around with this new thing they found to do with the camera, and it mm-hmm. creates a feeling. Mm-hmm. Exactly, yeah. And and because of that, I think when people say there's a moral to the story, mm-hmm. they're expecting that Aesop, grim fairy tale esque. This is the life lesson, and I don't think that's quite right. I think it's not quite right, but there is something there. I mean, stories yeah. have... I, I, I'm not sure we have a proper word for it, to be honest, mm. in English, as you just said. But I'm not sure. But it's a moral, a theme. There is an idea in almost every story. There, I can see that. There is a perspective about the way things should be in one form or another. No, not necessarily, as you said, optimal. Like, we're not saying torture porn means Yinbred should be hunting down corny teenagers. Mm. But but there's a catch, though. Uh-huh. The fact that these people are doing these things, eventually, I'm assuming, I don't watch torture porn films, if they're like every other horror film that's ever been produced by mankind, in the end, the torturers usually have the tables turned on them and yeah. usually hor- die horrible deaths. I'm going to guess that's probably what happens. And some people escape. And they right. will usually escape by virtue of being good people or being smart mm-hmm. or being clever or some something will happen that will allow the main characters to actually survive, the ones who do. And yeah. it creates – it's kind of a survival of the fittest thing. Again, going back to that moral – to – I will keep using the word moral, but again, that's not <laughs> quite right. But again, I'm going to use the word moral because that's what Truby uses. Going yeah. back to that moral idea that – if you are strong and smart and resilient and everything, you can survive anything, right? Yeah. And also that if you do evil, ultimately it will come back to you and you will be you'll be uh, killed by the people that you oppress. You know, you can't use these evil methods because eventually it will, you know, it won't work out, etc. There are those ideals that are still in there even in torture porn. There there are, but I think what ends up happening because again, I think there's an assumption that when a creator does something, they do it knowingly. Mm. And what ends up happening a lot, and this is where the idea of expectation comes in, something just feels right. Mm-hmm. And it can feel right because it's satisfying, because it supports what we already believe, like that idea that good is rewarded, evil punished. Right, um, exactly. 
it can feel right because it conforms to the formula that we've all mm-hmm. had over and over put into our heads. Yep. It can feel right for opposite reasons. Like if, if you're doing like a very nihilistic story, mm-hmm. um, and this is why you'll get like, say like 14 year old, like goth kids will like really, really, really like nihilistic things because they're, you know, exalting that value of, Oh, life is meaningless. It's an existential quandary, blah. So anything that supports that, it, it resonates with the feelings. Right. Right. But again, that's a moral or like worldview perspective that's yeah. there, that's within that. So it's within that story. It's within that piece of art. And therefore it is still there. It, res- it resonates out. And something I've been thinking about this is that stories that don't have that, that right. don't offer a worldview, don't offer a perspective within them is often why so many stories come across as flat. Yeah. And I mean, not that just automatically because you have a worldview, it's automatically a good story. There are, of course, so many different factors <laughs> and everything. But it's one of the things that when we say something is really bland, it's homogenous and everything, often that's really because it's not offering us anything new, not just novelty, but it's offering us a very simplistic, very limited worldview, a very limited moral framework that it's working within that isn't challenging anything. It's not even not even going near challenging. It's usually, it's just kind of sitting there and therefore it feels very unsatisfying to us. We know exactly how it'll work out. This isn't giving us anything that we really, um, I don't want to say challenged by, but it isn't giving us any, any novelty as you would say earlier. It's not stimulating. It's not stimulating. And in fact, actually I hear I might as well talk about it now. That's, I think, going back to what we were talking about earlier and what's supposed to be our topic for the day, um, when it comes back to remakes, reboots, and sequels. I think this is one of the real reasons that they actually fail. I think very many reboots, remakes, and sequels often fail because they lack that moral center, that worldview center that the original had that gave it a certain spark. And in fact, they often end up being shallow pastiches of that original work that actually resonated with people. I think it's very hard for them to actually capture, as they say, lightning in a bottle again, but the lightning in a bottle they're trying to capture is really often that ethereal worldview perspective moral that was part of the original story. And it's not there anymore. And it often just ends up being a hollow shell that looks like the original, but doesn't feel like one. Yeah, I, th- I think you're you're onto something, but I think there's another component mm-hmm. to the to the, the the conundrum, and I think it's because um, I, I, and and it goes back to the idea of expectation. That expectation gets formed in different ways. Like, um, mm-hmm. use the example of 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 like the 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 axe murderer movies that were really right. popular in like the seventies and the eighties. Mm-hmm. The prototype for them was the original Friday the Thirteenth. Right, yeah, definitely. They existed before, but that was kind of the one that took off, and everything yep. sort of followed that. And I'm I'm going to do some, like, 40-year-old spoilers here, so if, mm-hmm. if anybody hasn't seen, like, the original, you might want to... years, la, 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 la. Yep. But the whole premise of the story, mm-hmm. and this was something that became a staple of, of, of the slasher flick, was that Jason drowned mm-hmm. in the original... Because the, the, the counselors who were supposed to be watching him mm-hmm. were off, like, you know, doing the horizontal mambo and not paying attention. Yep. 
they were being horny teenagers. Yep. And this this is why all the horny teenagers in the films get killed off. Right. You find as slasher flicks came, and oh my god, there were so many of them, mm-hmm. that idea stayed, that it was like the horny teenagers that died, the, the pure, chaste, virginal ones are the ones that survive. Mm-hmm. But you can kind of see as it went on that the reason for that got forgotten. Yes, definitely. That it just, that was just how you did the film. Right, yeah. And then that creates expectation because if you had the innocent character get killed off first, mm-hmm. the audience would be all like freaked out. And depending on, on where they were at in their own head at the time, they might right. think that that was a clever twist or they might be offended because this movie's stupid, doesn't make any sense. No, that's called Scream. Yeah. That's what, they, that's what they did with the Scream franchise, is that it's all about, no, the people who have sex are the ones who live. Haha. <laughs> Among other things, because remember, it's supposed to be the all the whole horror cliches, but, you know, cut, turned on their head. Supposed to be. Supposed but, to be, but it really is just more of the same. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But that, again, was this idea that goes to that expectation. That I, whole slasher thing got played out. Mm-hmm. Scream comes out, and it's marketed as kind of a wink and a nod. Yeah. And then it's basically the same old slasher film again, but because you had just that little extra bit, just that wink and a nod, it felt different. Mm -hmm. So the audience's expectations, you've satisfied their quest for new without really making them knuckle under and deal with a completely new idea. Right. But you were still offering them that little uh, twist to the scenario and that created a new element. So it's like, oh, how does this play out? Yeah, that one... That one difference, that one weird thing that you can add per story. Exactly. Which goes back to my earlier statement that I said about we view stories almost as simulations. I don't, maybe that's not quite the right word, but basically we, we want to like, oh, well, this is a tiny bit different. How will this play out this time? Yeah. If we add these, if we add that one variable or variables, how do they change the story? And that's what keeps us interested. Mm-hmm. But the, the thing, oh, go ahead. Sorry. Which should make sequels automatically successful. But as we both know, and most of the listeners know, that's usually not the case. It's not, and I think that gets to the other idea too, that perspectives change over time. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the things that I think the remakes, the reboots, the sequels, the one thing that it's difficult to deal with when you're making them Mm -hmm. is taking this familiar idea... Mm-hmm. And twisting it up just enough right. for for the current audience. Right. And I think that's the the challenge there comes in that you're taking their pre existing expectations, but trying to hammer them into uh into the new mold for how right. whatever that kind of story is is done. Yes. You are, um, and because remember, everyone's got their cool elements of the original that they're just that they want to have more of, that they want to you want to give them more, mm-hmm. and yeah. Uh, not only that, now we have the extra complication as we brought up earlier of international audiences. Yep, which of course have different requirements because going back to my theme so far for the episode, the whole moral idea. Well, they have different concepts of what's right and wrong and different worldviews on things. Yep. And so some of it will not resonate with them. Mm-hmm. And actually, this goes back to something uh, that happened before with the, the Star Wars sequel that came out, The Force Awakens. Right. Bomb like hell in China. 
Like the uh-huh. Chinese just did not care about it. They did not care for it at all. The answer is because, well, yes, it's a watered down version of what they see all the time. Yeah. Of, you know, standard Chinese wuxia, you know, fantasy stuff. That's all Star Wars is. It's novel to us because it's someone else's rut, but it's their rut. So, yeah, when they try to market the Star Wars to China, Star Wars is like, or China is like, whatever, we don't care. Mm-hmm. It's just not going to interest them. And But, but it, going to the sequels remake thing, it also explains, though, in a weird way, why the whole Transformers thing works. Mm-hmm. I, now, this is a good ticket. This is an odd approach, but it both offers an American perspective, which is different from what the Chinese usually see, but offers stuff that they think is cool, and also offers as little... Uh, how can I put this? Depth. Actual story content as possible. <laughs> right. It's as it's a blank slate basically that looks like a story <laughs> that you can imprint your whatever your moral fabric is onto. Yeah, and I I'd seen there was a, a cracked article that talked about that where they said the reason they're so popular worldwide is exactly that because you you don't need a lot of like uh, cultural understanding to get the idea of a giant robot run like mm-hmm. it's a universal concept. Yep, it is. It's a very universal concept. <laughs> um, and there was another might have been cracked, but back in when it was good um concept that uh about how this is also why they don't make um comedies anymore there are no almost no big budget comedies made anymore it's because the studios know that that humor doesn't translate worldwide yeah that's it's too cultural it had it ought by default it automatically has a moral center to it that or a worldview a cultural center to it that doesn't always translate and doesn't work and so, therefore, it's not a good investment. Yeah. Or it's a risky one at any rate. It's, or Correction, yeah, it's a risky one. And so, because, you know, some cultures, some people are going to resonate no matter what country you're in, right? It's always going to work. There yeah. are people that think the Transformers movies are probably, like, some of the greatest pieces of art of mankind. Yeah. In this world, there are probably a scarily high number of those people. They're probably not listening to this podcast, but there are probably <laughs> a very large number of them. Yeah. Well, and then that ties in with the idea, too, that um, Mm -hmm. I think one of the reasons your more nerdly productions tend to do well and be aimed at younger audiences is because they have less expectation. Yes, they're kind of willing to accept whatever you give them because they don't have a lot of – a lot to compare it to. Yeah, and and it's an easier easier sell in that regard because, yeah, they don't don't have a lot of – depending how young they are, say real world knowledge. Mm-hmm. So they don't realize that you can't fall 50 feet and get back up and keep going. And they, they don't have a lot of like, um, you're usually just starting to get into your society. Like when you're say yep. early teens. So you don't have a lot of necessarily cultural knowledge. You have, it's, it's very limited because you're not part of your society or probably not an active participant in government. You don't know the, what it's like to work a job where you live you're you're kind of you've you've heard that from mom and dad, but mm-hmm. it tends to be more more I guess uh, stereotypes. Yeah, a more simplified view of that, so it's an easier mm-hmm. sell. Yep, yep, definitely. Yeah, so if I'm doing like a kid show, mom and dad just go to, and I'm making finger quotes, work. Mm-hmm. I don't have to explain what work is. It has something to do with an office, I guess. And yeah, and and that's enough because kids don't think about that. Absolutely. No, no, you're 100% right. They don't. And mm. 
it's that limited perspective. So they basically will accept whatever you tell them. Well, provided it makes some kind of emotional response. Right. If they like it, then yes, this is going to form their template. If they mm-hmm. don't, you've just phased yourself out. But that's, again, why you put in action, put in like weird monster kind of thing. Mm-hmm. A little rah, rah, rah. And it, 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 same works for adults too. Oh, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but going to that though, I mean, people, if you tell someone something is true, for the most part, many people don't have the knowledge to actually sort and say whether it isn't true or not. Like we read in movie or we read in novels, we see in movies things that are like totally unrealistic, mm-hmm. but we don't often have the knowledge to actually say whether they're realistic or not. Yeah, that, and is, that's a common problem. Uh, this is why I use the term expectation because hmm. that forms in different ways. If you have knowledge of something like real world yep. tangible knowledge, that will adjust what you expect. Mm-hmm. If you grew up um, watch, like I, I always use the example for um, running a role playing game. Mm-hmm. You have to know your player group because if I'm say going to run like a cop game or a detective game, mm-hmm. I have to know my players to know their expectation, I have to know where their idea of, say, what a cop does comes from. Mm -hmm. Like, if a couple of them are police, their expectation will be different than a guy whose idea of what police do comes from Bruce Willis movies. Exactly. Yep. And that that happens with a lot of stuff. That happens with any kind of story you present. Um, Mm -hmm. My favorite example of this was uh, when the movie Johnny Mnemonic came out. We all went to the theater and saw it. Right. And I'll never forget this. We're watching the film. Everybody in the audience is just watching, and nobody's, like, really humming and hawing about nothing. And mm-hmm. there's the one part where the, the, the preacher, the, the cyborg assassin guy, mm-hmm. gets, like, hit with a, a box trailer, and he bounces down the road, and then they pan in and him liner, and then his eyes light up, and he gets back up. Mm-hmm. And at that point, the woman in front of me went, yeah, right, like that could happen. And I'm thinking, okay, first off in real life, that's something getting bumped with a truck at that speed. Because it was supposed to be going fast, but it didn't look fast because, you know, special right. effects. At that time, really running over an actor caused problems. <laughs> yeah. But but in real life, that would be a survivable injury. And it's possible you, you would be conscious mm-hmm. from it. And secondly, I thought, this woman has just watched, like, an intelligent talking dolphin and a cyborg commando and a guy with a computer in his head. And the one thing that gets, the one thing she couldn't mm-hmm. get over right. was Buddy getting bumped by a van. Okay, that, but again, her expectations are different. She's she's coming in there with something else. Right, yeah. I, I don't okay. understand it, but again, it's because it's too far removed from my perspective. Mm-hmm. Yeah, everyone's bringing in their own perspective and their own ideas. Mm-hmm. And that's that's one of the reasons why um, sticking to the genre rules or doing familiar things or familiar actors or familiar mm-hmm. characters, you're kind of superseding that because you're hoping to know where the audience is coming in from. Mm-hmm. You're hoping. Yeah. I mean, well, you're, you're here. You're playing the odds, right? You're basically saying, well, this kind of movie works. The audience seems to like this stuff, so we'll do more of that. Yep. It really is that simple. 
And the problem is, of course, that if you don't do it correctly, you won't get the audience reaction you were hoping for. Yep. And and a lot of that, too, it's, it's a numbers thing. Like, that's why um, I'll keep coming back to Batman. Mm-hmm. We're at the point where if they make a Batman movie, it's going to kind of, they're going to ape the last Batman movie as best they can. Mm-hmm. Like, not the last one is in, like, Batman versus Superman, but the, the what was it, Ben Affleck? Not Ben Affleck, he did the No, one. you're talking the Christopher Nolan one with yeah. um, Christian Bale as Batman. Yeah. yeah. Dark Knight trilogy, as they call it. Yeah, because that's where you're, you're, you're expecting everybody's coming from. Right. And you're going to want to appropriate as much of that as you can, because that's the assumption. You're not going back to, like, the uh, Mr. Mom one. Mm-hmm. Because that's too far in the past. We're certainly yep. not going to do the uh, the Adam West one. Yep. You're really not going to do the old 1940s like movie serial Batman. Nope. You're probably not borrowing from like the Super Friends or the Filmation cartoons. It's it's the same reason when you get to the bad guys, you're not going to have them fight Calendar Man or the Ten Eyed Man because mm-hmm. that's not something in the public consciousness. Right. He's going to fight the Joker again at some point because that's what everybody expects. That's what they know. Yep. Oh, no. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, and it's, it's the same for every superhero character. They yeah. fight the popular villains because that's what everyone knows. And that's and what the audience wants, more or less. Yeah. In general, though, and, and this is where I think um, in the modern day currently we have the problem is you could experiment, I think. I like to mm-hmm. think. But they don't, and I think it's because from a production and the formula for how you make a movie or how you make a comic or how you make a TV show is pretty well rooted at this point. Mm. That nobody's Literally. yeah, nobody's going to risk their career doing a Batman movie and saying, you know, it's time that Batmite was brought to the screen in a serious, dramatic film. Like, it's it's just time for it. Nobody's going to take that risk. No, and nor should they. <laughs> I don't know. I'd like to see Jack Black playing Batmite. Okay, well, I'm sure you and a small cadre of others <laughs> might. Um, okay, well, let's take a slightly different approach then. Okay, so generally speaking, we've made the statement that sequels do not generally work that well. That mm-hmm. most uh, that most films, when they try to make a sequel of it, it just does not go so well. Mm-hmm. But we've already mentioned superhero movies, like you know they did Batman Begins, and then Christopher Nolan followed up by two extremely well received. I'm not going to say they were good, but extremely well received Batman films that came out. Right. Um, Marvel is literally chunking out sequels and quasi sequels because it's all tied in together. And they're up to like 16 movies or something at this point. Right. And they just keep pumping them out. And oddly enough, some of them are get better and better. I mean, I just saw the trailer for the new Thor movie. And to be honest, the first two Thor movies really kind of sucked. And the well, the first one was so-so. The second one's definitely sucked. Mm-hmm. Sorry, guys. <laughs> the third one looks freaking awesome. It looks like it looks like they finally you know found a new direction for this character that actually might be entertaining and interesting. Right. And, again, they've drawn it from the comic books and from the background material. But my point is, is that Marvel seems to have found a way to keep this stuff fresher, somewhat interesting, and make sequels work to one degree or another. Um, 
not they haven't always been winners. One would probably not say that all the Iron Man films, for example, were were as awesome as the first one. Right. But they still managed to find a way to keep it fresh and keep it interesting, whereas many other companies' sequels fail. Like people they try to do a second Ghostbusters or a second whatever. Another Pirates of the Caribbean. I think they're up to Pirates of the Caribbean six. Right. And each one seems to get worse than the one before it. Um and of course, as you've mentioned, they you know how many Friday the 13th did they make, etc. <laughs> and they never, they don't seem to get better. They seem to generally get worse. Yet, for some reason, the Marvel ones seem to have actually gotten better with time, not worse. Well, I think when you specifically talk sequels, mm-hmm. um, the trick you have to do with a sequel is each one has to add a little something to the overall story. Mm, okay. There's a problem with a lot, and especially the nerdly ones, that what they add is more. Mm-hmm. So, I think the superhero thing is always, first movie's the origin. Yep. Um, the second movie introduces, like, the, the like big dramatic villain. Mm-hmm. The, the third one, the hero fights the evil version of himself, I think, is the thing. Um, they'll, be, they'll do, like, well, put eight villains in this one. That's even better. Because that was the problem, like, say, the Iron Man ones. Right. They kind of start getting, oh, and he fights another guy who's like a power armor guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. And then, but he's got like mini armor and a suitcase. Well, that's interesting, but that, I don't know if would keep people's attention for a whole movie. Mm-hmm. That's true. Um, you look at, say, uh, Star Wars. Mm-hmm. First one comes out. Everybody thought it was great. Second one comes out. No, I am your father. Everybody's like, oh my God, that's great. Third one comes out. They're like... Ewoks, well, okay, I guess, whatever. But the third one wraps up the story. So everyone it, just accepts it anyway, except for yeah, Chad. Yeah, but it but it added that something. It's it's the Daniel, And I think that's why I say why Return mm-hmm. of the Jedi was the least popular of the original ones, because it wrapped everything up that was already there. It didn't really expand on things. So mm-hmm. you, you needed it. It did the trick. You watched it. You thought, well, it's pretty good. It's a good ending. and But it didn't have the big impact because right. this was something you needed. Right, right, yeah. And then they do like 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 the, the, the prequels. Mm-hmm. And the prequels aren't really adding anything except Jar Jar Binks. And you're like, okay. And prequels have the problem that everybody knows where this goes. Yes. And that, that creates that problem is you're, not only you're not adding new, you're taking mm-hmm. away. Because we see Darth Vader as like this giant armored badass who chokes people out by just kind of pointing at them. And you're like, oh man, he's awesome. And then you see he's this like whiny little kid. And you're like, oh, okay. That takes a little of the majesty away. Just a little. And then they, they hype it up like, oh, he's in the pod race. What's going to happen? He's going to win. He, he's not oh, going to die. You know, he, he accidentally ends up in space. Is he going to die? No, he's not. Because we know that in another 20 years, he's he's Darth Vader. And, yep. I, th- and I think that's why, like, say, prequels that directly tie in mm-hmm. tend to not do so good because of that. Right. Because they're not adding. Um, continuing with Star Wars, they did The Force Awakens. People, mm-hmm. it was met with a resounding meh. In, mm-hmm. in in no small part because it's basically like the original story again. Yeah. There's, it was just the original for a new generation. Yeah, which it does the trick. Um, mm-hmm. the, the kids probably don't really give a huge amount of crap about the very original. Like, 
they've seen it. Dad loves it. It's okay, but it looks kind of silly. The new one comes out. It's like that. This mm-hmm. might be your first Star Wars. Okay, it gets the idea across. Like I saw it and I thought, okay, it does the trick. Like you say, it's Star Wars for a new generation. It wasn't horrifying. It wasn't spectacular. It just kind of happened. Sure. Rogue One comes out. People are like losing fluids huge. I think again, because it satisfies that need for Star Wars, mm-hmm. it gives you enough of the familiar. So people are like, ooh, Adats, look, new stormtroopers. That's awesome. But it doesn't directly tie in. So it feels like something new. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And that's it. It fits that idea that uh, any kind of a sequel, and a prequel really is just a sequel in front, has mm-hmm. to add something. It has to to embiggen the story or the characters. It can't just be more of the same. And if you're just doing, like, say, the Iron Man thing, it's another guy in armor. Well, you get that fatigue quicker because yeah. another guy in armor isn't that new. Right. That's true. Mm. You have to do something different, which I think the Marvel movies have generally been reasonably good for. They've been trying some different stuff with them. And not all of them, as obviously the Iron Man one failed. Um, The second, the Thor sequel, The Dark World, didn't go very well either. Partly because there was nothing new there. It's just like, uh uh-huh, okay, yeah, more of the same. It's another um, army of generic bad guys. Oh, quick, Kurosawa-esque fight scene. Ha, hoo, ha. Okay, well, I, I've seen exactly. this. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And so there are limits. And I, I, I like your idea, though. The idea that depending on what variables you bring in determines how much, how quickly fatigue sets in. Where, where, you know, you've seen this, the blah, blah, blah. Okay, yeah. I'm done. And yeah. so that's actually, okay, that's something interesting to think about. Yeah, the fatigue definitely plays a part of it. Mm-hmm. Whether you call, would you call it story, story fatigue, basically. Yeah. Quick, kicks in pretty quick. Um, and again, when you combine that with the idea that, again, it's not offering anything new um, in any percents, both from worldview or from a content perspective. I mean, there are different angles that can offer new material. Yeah. And, but if there's nothing there, well, it's going to fail. There's nothing there. And I think that's one of the things that happens with reboots to bring them up for a second. Mm-hmm. So a lot of reboots are literally just a stripped down version of the original. There's literally nothing new there. In fact, they don't even want there to be new there. The only new bits are usually twists on the original that are usually not as clever as the director or writers thought they were. Yeah, I, th- I think a reboot, no, a reboot is a soft remake. Yeah, that's what it is. And and. 100%. I, yeah, I think you're right that what they're basically when they do like a when they do a reboot is they're trying to hang on to the original, mm-hmm. but usually for a marketing reason, uh, do something a little different so it feels like a like a, a new thing, right? And I think that's like the Spider-Man movies. You'll get that where it's a new guy playing Peter Parker because the old guy is forty now. Right. But they're not really mixing it up, so it's it's really weird because now you're like, well, you kind of retold the story and you kind of changed this stuff. Oh, it's not MJ this time, it's going to be Gwen Stacy. Yeah, but it's basically the same story and when 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 you did the other Spider-Man mm-hmm. that it was MJ, well you basically appropriated Gwen Stacy's story for that one already. So if you're familiar with the comic, it it already feels messed up. If you're not familiar with the comic, it kind of just feels like the same thing with a blonde this time. Yeah, yeah. And it's it's it it. I think that's why a lot of like uh, reboots don't go over mm-hmm. because you've already admitted defeat. 
Yeah, pretty much. <clears throat> that that yeah, you're you're already saying, well, we don't have anything new, but I, I mean to, to quote the Simpsons, new hat, new hat, I have to get one, new hat. But anyway. Right. Yep, no, no, I agree. Yeah, they're you're basically saying, Well, we couldn't come up with anything new, so we're gonna just cover the old in chocolate and try to sell it to you again. Yeah. Yeah, basically. Yeah. And um well, you know, I mean and sometimes it works. I mean, the audience audiences do go i mean the new star trek reboots did reasonably well um you know spider-man batman i mean every time they reboot the characters they seem to do reasonably well um for at least one film anyway sometimes two or three yeah um and so definitely reboots and remakes do actually work sometimes anyway i think it just depends on the creative team that's involved and what they bring to the table yeah, and there's there's some luck, and it depends who your audience ended up being. Mm, there's that too. Because I I can think of all kinds of stuff over the years with people I've known mm-hmm. that they would love something for the strangest reason. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the best example I can think of was back when they did the uh, the the Next Generation Star Trek. Mm-hmm. Well, Randy was a huge Trekkie. Right. Like, she was a huge, stereotypical, memorized every line, probably worse than Jack Trekkie. Mm-hmm. And you couldn't watch it with her, because any time they showed a new spaceship, she'd pause every scene, and she'd frame by frame every scene of a new spaceship and discuss, oh, that looks like the 59C landing light from the... And, and you'd be like, hey, just show the fucking show, Randy! We're episodes an hour long, and we've been here two hours. But but it was right. be- but it was because, and you'll see this with... with with nerdly art, especially Trek. Trek's a good example. That they love those things like the tech. Right. And there's a certain percentage of your audience that if you amp up the tech, they're going to love it. Yeah. I think Gundam has been running on that for a long time now. Yes. But you risk the, the, the by doing that of alienating everyone else who's not that into it. And now by amping that part up, you're detracting from the other stuff. Hmm. That's true. Mm-hmm. So yeah. Well, also the thing is, for some films and such, I mean, sometimes that's the new, right? That's what you're yeah. offering, because you know that the story is not going to be that original or interesting. So you just <coughs> have to focus on element, like say the tech, for example, yeah. and say, well, this is the new we're bringing to the story. I mean, we know that you're not going to be interested so much in the you know, the plot or whatever. So that's what we're going to bring. We're going to bring like new tech, cool new visuals, whatever. Yeah. New, a new visual experience. And and that was what, what kept the, uh, back in like the eighties, the, uh, the, the ax murder movies going. Mm, right. Was that if you could come up with a new weird story for the ax murder, that was the selling point of the film. Nobody gave a shit about the plot. Nobody remembered the names of any of the kids. Right. But that, well, that's how murder mysteries have kept going for God knows how many years, right? It's all about coming up with a clever new way to kill people. Yeah, and it, and I don't think it's necessarily bad. But you have, if you're going to do something like that, you got to know your audience, and you have to have those ideas. It's superheroes too. Forever, um, the superhero never changes, especially say mm-hmm. in the comic. It's about the villain. Yeah, yeah, it's true. And, well, again, because the hero can't change. Yeah, and if you can keep coming up with interesting villains, then you have an interesting story. Yeah. Um, I th- I think the idea, too, um, with the reboot 
kind of ties in with when you translate something from one medium to another as well, because I think you get a lot of the same problems. Hmm. That you're you're basically taking this idea and to fit it into a new medium, mm-hmm. you're kind of um, filing stuff off, right? And you're 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 kind of kind of toning it down because tying into with that idea of adding the one new element, you you don't wanna you don't wanna overwhelm the audience with all kinds of new, right? Um, case in point, uh, currently they're running ads for the uh, Ghost in the Shell live action movie. Right. Uh, the comic and even the animated mm-hmm. series, I'm not a huge fan. Mm-hmm. But it, a I lot am, of, but Yeah, and, and, and you know that a lot of the comic net, what made it interesting is that Shiro's like a, a sociology like professor kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And the book was about the tech and how it fit in and society and it was it was this big picture kind of story. Mm. Um the movie looks like Resident Evil except the 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 naked chick is different. Some of that's the way they're marketing it. Mm-hmm. I have a pretty good idea of what the story is. I haven't seen the movie, uh, the live action one. Yeah. Um but I know the plot line that it's based that it's based on. I know the story it's based on. Mm-hmm. And it won't really play out that way, but right. that's that's how they're marketing it. Because again, they they're trying to convince the audience that no, no, this is like that other thing that you love and spend money on. Yeah. So therefore, you can trust it and come see it. Yeah. It's all about making the audience comfortable. <clears throat> yeah, and and that's and that's the idea. Because like I say, it's 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 Resident Evil, mm-hmm. and they made you into this. Well, they can't control me. I don't remember that being a big Ghost in the Shell thing. Yeah, she didn't really care. No, and 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 it was a cop Doesn't, story. Well, cuz it is cuz Cheryl loves cop stories. Yeah. It's it it's yeah, it's a cop story. It's you know, they're they're high-level police, high-level super cyborg police, but yeah, they're police basically. Mhm. And that's what it's about. I mean, there's elements of like sociology and how humans are going to interact with machines and everything mm-hmm. and all that and I'm sure there's a bare whisper of those ideas in this new film, but I'm sure most of them got edited out pretty fast. Yeah, and even even in the ad too, the idea that there's this like secret group that made her into the killer cyber. As I recall in Ghost in the Shell, that kind of shit was all like off the shelf. <laughs> pretty much, yeah. And and but again that that they're taking it down mm-hmm. to something that's that's more familiar, that that's more but Okay, so let's get into something then, because you, before this show, you sent me some articles. Okay. Um, one of which talked about how they did were doing research, I believe it was, was it uh, UCLA that researcher was at? Um, that basically they found out that, uh, he found <coughs> that when they uh, spoiled stories, people actually enjoyed them more. Yeah, if, if, if you remember too, um, Chad talked about that years ago. Mm-hmm. That that he said no that they 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 know that if the audience knows how it ends, they like it better. Yeah, which is very odd. But um, I guess maybe it's because they feel more relaxed. They're not as tense. They're they feel happier. You know, they like it better. But I can't help but wondering if it's because they're more sedated by the whole experience it's less challenging for them and more sedating if they know they don't have to worry about anything there's no fear anxiety or you know real heavier emotions involved 
So they like it better, but they like it better in the same way that, you know, people zone out, you know, after a hard day of work watching TV. Yeah, I, I think I think that's exactly it, that um, people at least think they want something more like passive from the entertainment. Um, I've often doubted that, and I've mentioned this to the people at my one job all the time, because they're always saying, oh, I'm tired and blah, blah. And it's like, well, you're not tired, you're fatigued. Mm-hmm. It's not tired as physical. It's because you're doing the same thing day after day and you go home and do the same stuff. There's no challenge. There's no input. There's no mental stimulus and people need right. Some need more than others. Mm-hmm. But you get into that because that takes work mm-hmm. and it takes effort. And again, people are too wore out or, or too in the groove that they don't want to put forth that effort. And that's one of the reasons why mm-hmm. the same old, same old works. And if you spoil the ending, there isn't that tension. Yeah. That I, I think um, in the last 20 years or so, we've gotten way too used to being pandered to, mm-hmm. to the point that even if we're supposed to be watching a tense same film, we don't like to feel that tension. It's an alien emotion to us. Yes. And that's why there are other cultures that do make films with that tension. Mm-hmm. And that's why every now and then there'll be like a Korean horror film or thriller or something like that that everyone will go apeshit for. Yeah. And usually that's because it has those emotions in it. And we're yeah. just not used to feeling them anymore. And so people will be like, oh my God, check out this horror flick about this girl that crawls out of TVs and stuff. Because, <laughs> you know, American horror had become so blah and had mm-hmm. lost that edge to it. And so suddenly people went nuts for the ring. Mm-hmm. And or that Korean movie Old Boy that came out where, you know, it's a revenge flick and everything. But it offered some raw you know, raw feelings and such and tension that you weren't quite sure how it was going to turn out. Mm-hmm. But you'll notice they don't want a steady diet of that. They no. want some of that. They want, you know, they want to, they want to, they want to feel that now and then. And those films often do stand out in their memory and do, you know, resonate with them. But very quickly they go back to the same old pretty fast. Yeah. Cause it's, it's taxing. It's, it's, uh, it, it's like, uh, one of Corin's speeches at work mm-hmm. where he said, people don't want to think. Thinking hurts. It makes the blood flow to the brain. You get a headache. You're like, what is this? I'm getting these pictures in my head and my skull is throbbing. I don't like this. Yep. And I think, again, some of it's climatization. And I think, because what ends up happening is mm-hmm. it's also that conflict that if you shock the audience too much, they're going to turn out because they're either going to be like horrified uh, you're mm-hmm. going to lose them. Those intense feelings are going to start wearing them out. But if you don't put any of that, then the fatigue sets in quicker because you're not getting that visceral kick in any capacity. Right, yeah. Like you can watch the horrible Housewives of wherever and when when they're they're arguing, it's like your brain, like you said, our brains can't tell the difference between reality and, and, and imagination. Mm-hmm. So when they're arguing on TV, it's like watching an actual argument. Your subconscious is like, huh, bitches going to hit each other. <laughs> and it gives you that kick. Mm-hmm. After a bit, you know which one is the obnoxious one. You know which one is the selfish one. You know how they're going to react. It's not interesting. But if we now make the Horrible Housewives somewhere else, mm-hmm. it's just different enough. You get that little bit of kick. You put that little bit of effort in while you're learning, okay, which is the queen bitch of this bunch, which is mm-hmm. the calm one, which is the the stuck-up one. And it gives you that little kick for a bit. And then once that gets tired, you make the horrible housewives of some other place. 
Yep, exactly. And it, and it goes on until you end up going somewhere that your audience can't relate to. Mm-hmm. It's the horrible housewives of Uzbekistan, and people are like in America are like, I don't get this. Like, what, 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 why do they have goats? Like, what is the, and then they tune out, or you've played that formula to the point where even that formula now creates fatigue because they've yeah. seen it so many times. Yeah, they're, they can't get any more variations out of it. They're kind of done. Yeah. And so at that point, you have two options, which is go back right to the original formula, which might actually still be interesting again because it's been so long, mm-hmm. or which is often what they try and yeah. usually fails. Um, or, yeah, just give it a break. Just yep. say, yep, we're going to take a break. We're going to do something else for a while. Because that kind of gets into the third thing we were going to discuss, mm-hmm. that being a remake. Yes. Because a remake is an attempt to take... Uh, an established property, I'll say, be it character, story, whatever, mm-hmm. and move it into uh, the current audience. Yes. And in, in in a way, that's what happens when a formula gets like really played out. It goes away for a bit until either everybody's kind of forgotten it, uh, you've got the next generation of audience who didn't see it in the first place, or someone manages to come up with something that's just enough of a twist that it freshens it up and now everybody's into it again. That's a good way to describe it. Yeah. And um, unfortunately, remakes often <coughs> end up being, we'll say, inferior to the original. There mm-hmm. are exceptions. There yeah. are definitely exceptions. But remakes often are inferior because, again, they usually tend to lack that center and that vision and everything that the original had. And it also, originals, of course, are usually products of their time. And yeah. that's another big part of it. As you said, <clears throat> you're, you're updating it for the new generation, but do you really have that sense of the new generation that the original creators had that made that allowed them to tap into the current culture of their time? Yeah, I, I think he hit a couple things there too, because this is one of the places geezerisms come from. Mm-hmm. Because if the old audience is still around and still vocal... Mm-hmm. They, of course, are likely not going to enjoy the new thing because it's not what they're used to. Right. And that's where you go, no, ours was better. Because, no, it wasn't better. It was just a little different. You know, mm-hmm. the the actors were different. It's also one of the reasons why sometimes you can't overcome that because if enough of your audience remembers the old, right, you don't have that novelty. Mm-hmm. Like on a personal level, that's one of the reasons I didn't care for The Walking Dead. Right. Because I remember 80s zombies movies, and I've seen it. I, I, I've seen people squabbling, going from, like, conclave of survivor to conclave of survivor. Everything looks cool till you find out they're cannibals. Yep. I, I've seen it. But zombies hadn't been around for, for a bit, and then that comic came out, and then zombies took off, and they did the show, and then that became representative of zombies. Right. But again, like I say, for me... Mm-hmm. I wasn't into it because I've seen this. For pe- yeah, for people younger than me, they may not have seen like a proper zombie movie, so it was something they could get into. Mm-hmm. Well, and for people in general, I mean, remember it was appealing to an audience that probably didn't watch like the original Dawn of the Dead and things like that back in the eighties. Yeah, even the zombie movies of the eighties. Yes, there was a bit of a zombie culture craze back in the very early 80s but it still wasn't quite on the scale that the walking dead craze or zombie craze has been in the last 10 years say no but it it was similar it was similar that's true it was more a home video thing yeah yeah um 
But the key point again is that zombie films were a little bit different back then, and so yep. they were a little more counterculture, is my point. And so, and The Walking Dead, on the other hand, appealed to a general mass audience. Like it really tuned into it. It brought in a mass audience. It connected with them, and therefore that's why it became such a huge mega hit. Yeah, one of the reasons, anyway. Yeah, and and then that's again because. The audience changes, their expectations change. They're going to get something out of it. Yep. And if you do a remake, especially nowadays, you always luck out that people who are into newer zombie movies probably don't watch the old ones because the effects aren't as good. And Yep. Like I say, a lot of them were a home video thing, so they didn't have the budget even for the day. Oh, yeah. Usually they were pretty bad. Yeah. Um, well, they were bad in the effects department. They weren't necessarily bad in the makeup. Some of them actually had very clever makeup and yeah. different approaches and could be actually even more visceral than the modern stuff. Mm -hmm. But again, they don't follow the modern standards. So there we yeah. go. All right. But so anyway, so back to what we we're talking about. Yeah. So the modern audience has certain expectations and you want to meet them while remaking the old and it sometimes doesn't work. Yeah. And um, there's a often doesn't work. Yeah, I, I've seen a few, but a lot of times, because what you end up, it's like you were saying before, mm -hmm. everything's a product of its era. Yep. And when the era changes and the audience changes, a lot of times you lose what made that thing stand out. Mm -hmm. um, and it's hard to translate it while keeping the feel of the original. Like a lot of remakes nowadays, what they'll just do is take the names of stuff and slap it onto the standard for whatever that is. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, hmm? oh, for example, any like kind of, well, Star Trek. Okay. The new Star Treks are really not Star Trek. They're sci-fi action series five. Yeah, I agree. They're generic sci-fi action series. That's literally what they are. Yeah. Which is not entirely a surprise because the guy who made them, JJ Abrams admitted that he never watched the original series and didn't care for it. For what yeah. he'd seen. He, so he was just making his idea of a generic sci-fi action series. Yeah, and because and so, Trek is supposed to be a little more highbrow. Supposed to be. Yeah, that's that's what made it not Star Wars. That's true. And then the movies, they don't really... Yeah, they're, they're straight up action. They borrow some of the names. They don't have the same history, really. They don't have a lot of the... The characters are, 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 are different. Mm -hmm. The backstory is different. But they, yep. they, they called it Star Trek because it, it sounds better than generic space fantasy number eight. Well, yeah, pretty much. Um, so, yeah, that's definitely true. I and mean, it... it uh, sorry, go. Oh, I was going to say, too, and it's the idea that um, I don't know mm -hmm. if you could do a big, big, like, theatrical production of Star Trek now because I don't know if you have the audience enough of an audience that would be receptive to that slightly more highbrow kind of thing at the moment. That would be interesting. Could you do it? I would say yes, but it would be very difficult and you would require uh, artist. And I really do mean an artist at the helm who has a real vision. So it would require someone with a real artistic vision and a real artistic sensibility who could bring something different to it that offered something that was a bit on the artsy side, mm. an artsy slash intellectual side, while still delivering something that was 
that offered the spectacle basically that the audience wants. Yeah, that's and that's that can be tricky to do. It is tricky to do, which is and it's a risk, which is exactly why the studios won't do it. Yeah, until they, they have to, until they're until they're they have options. to, yeah. yeah, until they have to, or until you get a superstar artsy director who has already made his name and whose name will sell tickets and everything, who comes in and is offering their vision of it. Like they're brought in specifically to offer something like that or different Yeah, by the studio. That's the only other time you could really see it happen. Yeah. Um, and then the audience will probably either love it or hate it, depending on how it works out. Yeah, it's not going to be an in-between for that. No, no. Um, so, yeah, one way or the other. Anyway, so we should probably bring this a little more to a close because I'm starting to really run down energy wise. Okay. Um, so what else do we want to cover? Is there anything in particular? Uh, well, I always think about, um, talking about remakes. Mm-hmm. Uh, one, one thing that, that I, 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 I kind of laugh because there, there was a tendency for a bit to do remakes is the dark gritty version of stuff. Right. Um, I always think it'd be funny, like to take inappropriate things and, and redo, like, can you imagine, Nowadays, if they read it all in the family. Ooh. That would not go over very well. No, because it's 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 the idea that you weren't supposed to empathize with Archie. He was supposed to be an obnoxious racist, and that was the joke. Mm-hmm. Right. But even if you did that nowadays, I'm wondering if people would take that as a joke or they'd just be highly offended that this guy said this. I think they would be just highly offended because that's how they get attention on the internet. Yeah, it could be. And then again, it's, 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 it tends to, there's inertia. Mm-hmm. That, that. I mean, there are, going with your idea though, there are probably some things that probably should be remade. There are probably many things. I mean, Chad mentioned one during our cult movies one that we did, bad movies, sorry, not mm-hmm. cult, um, where he said that, you know, we should be remaking them. And I agree with him a hundred percent. There are some old movies and old properties and stuff that if they that if they did just by their very weird or obscure nature would probably produce very interesting films or could really be fascinating brought to a modern audience yeah they will almost never be made but uh, or chosen but yeah. they that you you probably could do some interesting stuff with it you could my shtick is i always want to see something new mm-hmm. but there are there are a lot of things that if they brought them back and they kind of kept the point. Yes. Like, sometimes you do things sideways and it doesn't work out and it kind of should have. Like, I think of um, when they made the Green Hornet movie. Right. And everybody was upset because he wasn't Batman. Because the Green Hornet was basically, you go back to the 40s, this is your generic mask man of mystery yeah. here. He, he was Batman with a different outfit. Batman. Yeah, yeah. And... I can kind of see that, but I can see if you're bringing that back, you don't want to do that because then everybody would just go, oh, it's like, it's like a Batman ripoff. Exactly. But the irony was I thought it was an interesting film, and I have mm-hmm. to wonder if they had have just made up a new character. Right. Would it have gone over better? Huh. Cause- um, I would bet the answer is no. Mm-hmm. I think it probably would have gotten ignored. I don't know. Seth Rogen's in it. He's known for wacky comedy. And I think if you had have not called it Green Hornet, people would have thought, oh, it's Seth Rogen doing a wacky superhero comedy. Yeah, but the Green Hornet's 
Batman, but he has that weird high concept aspect to him. Mm-hmm. And I think that was one of the other reasons why people didn't know how to take it. For those who aren't familiar, the Green Hornet basically pretends to be like the most badass crime boss in his city. Mm-hmm. But he's really actually a superhero who's using his quote-unquote crime boss status to screw with all the other crime bosses. Yeah. And put them all out of business, which is a very oddly high concept. It's one of the reasons why the Green Hornet I don't think has ever truly taken off. It had its you know brief renaissance when Bruce Lee was Kato, but I think people cared more about Bruce Lee as Kato than they did about the Green Hornet, if I remember right. Yeah. Or the, and... It's had various times when it's had, you know, it has a cult following basically, <clears throat> but it's not something that ever really took to the mainstream. And I think some of that is its very concept, its very core, doesn't quite work with the mainstream. It's, it's, got, it's got a clever originalness to it. And going back to what I said, it offered a slightly original take on things. Yeah. But that's also why I don't think it made to the mainstream. And I don't think it would work at the mainstream, even if they called it something else. See, I think it might because, again... With with Batman, you've got uh, the guy who uses fear, and the idea that, especially in in when they go back to his origin, that he's not entirely trusted by the public or the authorities. And Green Horn is just a little bit more of that. Mm, that's true. Well, okay, I see your point, but I still think he's a little bit higher concept than most people would take, but. Me, but again, it, I guess it depends. Also, the movie itself, which I overall liked, mm-hmm. is still actually a bit of an uneven, uneven movie that can't quite decide whether it does want to be a super serious superhero movie or whether it wants to be a weird, wacky comedy. And it kind of waffles in between, and I think it suffers for that. Yeah, I, I, I can see that too. I think, again, because they're trying to... It, it seemed mm-hmm. like they're trying to fit it to the idea of, of the, the, the character as established. Exactly. Exactly. So, yeah, the Green Hornet. Okay, I yeah, I don't think that would have made a huge difference, but maybe I'm wrong. You know, and you never know. Mm-hmm. I mean, and uh, there's the then there's the reverse, which is of course Nolan's uh, Dark Knight Batman trilogy, mm-hmm. which, from my perspective, that's not Batman. It's yeah. not. It's a. It's Christopher Nolan's Batman like superhero, but. That's not Batman. I'm sorry. I know Jack Ward is pulling his hair out right now, but there is because Jack Ward thinks it is. We've had that argument, Jack mm. and I. Um, but no, it's it's Nightman. You know, yeah. but but if they called him Nightman instead of Batman, nobody would have gone to see it. No one would have cared. Yeah. And so they called him Batman instead. And I I I can see the perspective that no, Batman's a flexible character. There are different versions, but no, that's not Batman. That's yeah. this is a rich you know, millionaire playboy trying to be a Batman cosplayer who can barely fight in that armored suit of his and kind of limping through while other people uh, basically dance around him and he survives just because he's the hero. Oh, so he's Um, the Green Hornet. Also, pretty much, yeah. I mean, and heck, even in... Even in the Dark Knight trilogy, they people pointed out he's actually only Batman for a period of maybe like two years, mm-hmm. and then he retires and quits. Right, like within the within the within the setting. Sorry, that's not Batman. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's that's not that's another superhero. I suppose you could make that claim. Oh, it's a realistic take. On, no, no, that's <laughs> not Batman. That's 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 not the driven guy who spends his life, 
you know, fighting, you know, the good fight and, you know, trying to solve Gotham's crime problems and such. That's not him. This is a millionaire dilettante cosplayer mm-hmm. who's pretending to be Batman. See, and that gets to what we were discussing all along, that idea that, say, for you and Jack, you have this different set of expectations in your head. And when, exactly. you, when you get to that Batman, it's too far removed from yours for you to, mm-hmm. to get into it. But it's close enough to his that he can get into it. And even if it's a new take, it's still something he can appreciate because it, it's, it fits more along his train of thought. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, again, it all comes back to audience expectation. Mm-hmm. And I think that kind of brings everything around, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, yeah, it's all about audience expectation in the end and working with your audience and what's in their heads. <laughs> which, which makes me think, um, mm-hmm. there's some poor person right. out there in the world that that at some point in their life... They went to see a, 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 a Star Wars movie mm-hmm. and were, because of their expectation and their, their previous experiences, they were sorely disappointed to not see B. Arthur singing in it. Oh, you have to bring that up, don't you? <laughs> I do. <laughs> yeah, well, you're probably right. I mean, there probably was some person who actually liked the Star Wars holiday special and thought that Star Wars was a singing, dancing extravaganza. Yep. <laughs> And they were expecting a musical in space. Um, Wouldn't that have made The Phantom Menace better? It pro- there are many things that would have made The Phantom Menace better. Although, you know, I actually argue that of the prequels, I think The Phantom Menace is the best film of those three f- movies. Okay. Um, and, um, yeah, no, really. I mean, of the, of the prequels, I mean, because the other, they get progressively worse, I would argue. Mm-hmm. Like, they're... The second one, anyway, whatever. The key point is that, yeah, I'm not a big prequel fan, as many are not. And right. I think that The Phantom Menace is the closest one, I think, to a Star Wars film of them, okay. oddly enough. Maybe it's because it does have the the kid and Tatooine and everything like that. But at least I like the the Jedi in, in The Phantom Menace are actual badasses. Mm-hmm. Like... That's something I actually liked about The Phantom Menace is the first 10, 15 minutes of the film where they go on that Trade Federation ship and the Trade Federation guys are freaking the hell out because, oh my God, two of these Jedi guys showed up. And it really sets the mood. It really is like these guys are, you know, super badasses. Right. And it works. And it go it goes from there. I mean, there are some elements of the film that do actually work. If you were to cut out a lot of the stuff with the kid and everything with Jar Jar, I think it might actually not be that bad a film. <laughs> I know there's the somewhat infamous, I haven't seen it, but I heard it's quite good, Phantom Edit, where an editor went in and basically all of Jar Jar's dialogue is now just gobbledygook, which is subtitled. Uh-huh. And um, he got rid of a lot of the comedy and he you know toned down some of the kids' stuff and everything. And apparently the film's actually pretty good. Huh. Um, I've often wanted to see that, um, just because to see if see if it's really true. But I I could see that there could be a, not a great film, but a a much better film in there. And maybe that's why I always thought that the of the movies, the Phantom Menace is actually the one that I actually can kind of appreciate. Wow. Um, I know I can hear from Tony your tone of voice. You don't quite agree. Well, I'm um, I'm thinking it's not a glowing review, but that's probably the closest to a positive review I've seen of that film. 
Yeah, I mean, I mean, I think that the Phantom Menace also suffers a lot from again audience expectations. Yeah, when when it came out, there hadn't been a Star Wars film in like twenty years, and people were literally losing their minds over it. I mean, yeah, the, today's fans may not realize this, but when the Phantom Menace came out, people literally camped out for weeks, if not months, to be yeah. the first person to see that film. Like it was literally like. Jesus Christ had, you know, come back to the earth and was, uh, was, you know, going to be showing on May 5th or whatever, was going to be in the Hollywood Bowl and you were going to have a chance to see him. Yeah. I mean, the amount of fan energy that went into that was just astounding. And equal amounts of fan disappointment obviously <laughs> occurred after it came out. But I think it was already being held to such a high standard. Yeah, I do agree with that. Um, again, I'm not saying it's a great film. I'm not. But, uh, <laughs> Please but don't egg I, my house. <laughs> exactly. But I do think that it was held to a very high standard. Yeah. That it didn't reach. And, but I think that people just pushed, went a little far with it. Now, the ones that came after that, which are more just kind of like generic action fests. Right. I mean, they lack heart. They lack soul. They're very wooden. They're very just clunky films. Yeah. And for a number of reasons, George Lucas being number one on the list. Um, and so I think they deserve a lot of the scorn that they get. I think they've got their moments too, but for the mm -hmm. most part, they're not just not very good films. Right. Well, that and I always had the problem with, with them. Like I was saying, I know how this turns out. Well, yeah. And going back to, as we said about prequels, I generally think prequels are a bad idea. Yeah. I think it's a general rule is that prequels again this is a general there can be exceptions but a general rule is if you want to make a prequel don't do it just yeah. don't do it man i mean because prequels almost never work out because they almost never really add anything and the audience already knows where it's going yeah the only way i have found that you could make a prequel and make it half decent and this is again pushing things a tiny bit but i can see it mm -hmm. is where you make a prequel but it's actually about different characters then maybe the it leads in basically the Rogue One approach, basically, yeah. where you it's really about different characters. It's a different film, but it does tie into you know, the story, so it builds yeah. up in a different way. But you're telling a, effectively a new story in the same setting with some of the same variables or some of the same elements to it. Right. I think that can work, and I yeah. think that's where the Star Wars prequels definitely fell down. I think yeah. the fact that they tried to make it Anakin's story was an interesting idea, but I did ultimately didn't work. As you said, they ultimately, all they did was, you know, kind of ruin Darth Vader in a way. Yeah. You know what, you know what Star Wars story they really need to tell? Oh God. Okay. What one besides B. Arthur? Oh, I was going to say the ice cream guy. Oh, okay. Yeah. There we go. <laughs> He's got an action figure. That is true. Yeah. Someone did do that. <laughs> um, but... I think that we can probably live without it. Maybe. Um, although I'm sure there's some, you know, Star Wars fanfic about him. Don't worry. You can probably <coughs> go looking on like Wikipedia or something. You'll find an actual whole expanded <laughs> universe canon story about that dude. Oh, there is. There's, there's, uh, <coughs> like I said, he's, he's got his own action figure. If I remember, then obviously there is. If I remember correctly, Hasbro did one. Cause that ice cream maker thing he's carrying is supposed to be a data core from Cloud City, and it contains some kind of top special secret awesome information he's trying to keep from the Empire. Right. Okay. And he's so in the not? film for probably all of 25 seconds. 
Right. But I would watch his story, especially if it was a musical. Okay, then. Yeah, I believe it's time to go. (laughs) Thank you, everyone, for listening to our um, discussion of sequels, reboots, remakes, and whatever else. Mm -hmm. Um, Hopefully, you found this interesting, even if it has wandered off a little track (laughs) towards the end. Um, And it's given you something to think about. Um, Is there a real answer about sequels, remakes, and reboots? The answer is not really just that probably most cases people were better off just not making them <laughs> but that's just my take on it i mean obviously the marvel movies have proven me wrong to one degree or another but again with them they tend to keep reinventing themselves and i think that maybe that's the key yeah. if you're going to do this stuff you really have to do some reinvention you can't just rest on what came before mm-hmm. you have to offer something new truly new if you want it to work right so good night folks and take care I need a new shtick. Maybe the audience can write in and suggest one for you. Oh, we can start a petition. Get Ice Cream Guy his own movie. Good night, folks. (laughs) Bye. Thanks for listening to the show. If you'd like to hear more or join the conversation, come visit us at obeythedna.com. You can also find us on iTunes or whatever fine podcast site forgot to lock their back door. So until next time, remember that to master the nerdly arts takes time, practice, and enough Coca-Cola to drop a rhino. See ya!